You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We welcome Vice President Mike Pence. Mr. Vice President, thank you so much for joining Bloomberg Television. We just heard from President Biden um, on this historic UAW strike, as well as Sean Fain. You and Sean Fain actually share, share some geography. <laughs> he worked at a plant in Kokomo, Indiana, 100 miles from your hometown of Columbus. <laughs> but he's striking against the big three. This is about Detroit and Michigan, a state you and President Donald Trump flipped to red the first time Republicans flipped Michigan in 2016 since the 1980s, but you lost it in 2020. Are you on the side of the workers? Do you think what they're doing is justified? Well, look, let me say, I, I, I'm on the side of the American people who are struggling under the failed policies of the Biden administration. Joe, Joe Biden has weakened this country at home and abroad, but that gusher of spending when they came into office, $2 trillion in unnecessary spending, launched the worst inflation in 40 years. Wages haven't kept up. I, I, the backdrop of what's happening between the big three and the UAW today is that American workers are hurting. I hear it everywhere I go across the country. People, you know, people are struggling to pay for groceries. They're struggling to pay for gasoline at the pump. And, and it's, it, you know, I tell people this one crisis after another, uh, and the, but they're all man-made crises, and that man's name is Joe Biden. And so I think the first thing is uh, 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 the, the strike and the demands that you hear from workers are being driven by people that are, that are, that are enduring the failed policies of, of Bidenomics. Uh, but I, I also think, Emory, I, I honestly think what, what you touched on just a few moments ago is an unreported aspect of this. Look, I, I was governor of the state of Indiana. It's a second And it was leading. a right-to-work state. Uh, it's you a right-to-work state, but, but we have a proud UAW tradition there, a proud automotive tradition in the state of Indiana. So, um, and, and I will tell you, what, what I'm hearing uh, around the country is that, that auto workers are very concerned about Joe Biden's Green New Deal heavy-handed effort to use taxpayer dollars to drive uh, these automotive companies into electric vehicle production. I mean, you got a, you got 145,000 workers out there that been, many of them built a lifetime making making gasoline powered cars, and suddenly they see Joe Biden and uh, and liberal Democrats pushing down this electric vehicle agenda. You see states like California that are saying, at the end of the decade, they're not even going to let you sell a gasoline powered vehicle in the state. I, I, I think that's also driving this. So the backdrop of the failed policy 
policies of the Biden administration, plus the heavy-handed effort with their Green New Deal to, to use taxpayer dollars to drive these companies away from the traditional manufacturing that so many UAW workers have made it in. I, I, think, that, I think that's what brought us to today. Well, let's talk a little bit more about what Sean Fain and, and, and his union members are saying. They're trying to play catch-up, they say, sure. with a massive gap between worker pay and executive pay. He said, we're tired of living off the scraps left by millionaire executives. When it comes to wages, you opposed raising the minimum wage in 2007 as a congressman at that time. I believe it was 515. They wanted to raise it, and I believe did, to 725 at the time. And as, as governor, uh, you blocked an effort that would, that would have had local municipalities essentially demand higher wages from some companies. I know that's actually in line with your politics. So I guess I would ask you here, how should they be catching up? If, if wages right. kept par with profit growth over the last two decades, would these workers be in the same spot? Well, let, let's be clear. I mean, I, I'm a, I believe in free market economics. Mm -hmm. I mean, free enterprises created uh, the most prosperous nation the world has ever known. We have to preserve that. And uh, uh, minimum wage debates that always came up back in my day in Congress and even when I was governor. I mean, you, you looked around the state of Indiana, you look at labor shortages today, uh, nobody's making minimum wage. I mean, the marketplace is paying out a higher number all across the country with very few exceptions. But I, 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 th I think you put your finger on it, Joe. It, it, I think what's, what's happening with this strike, and I, I'm glad it only affects 13,000 workers so far, so far. because of all, all these 145,000 workers go on strike, that's going to have an enormous impact on an economy that's already struggling and, and is literally on the verge of a recession. And, uh, but I, I think that, that rather than going back to the same rhetoric about closing the gap between the executives and others, we'll hear that more, we just heard that from President Biden, is to recognize that under Biden's economic policies, wages have not been keeping up with inflation. And hardworking Americans out in the heartland know that. Inflation is starting to come down now. And a lot of these legislative uh, products of the Biden administration is really also about China. They're trying to move the supply chain away from China. To get an EV tax credit, most of that car needs to be assembled or some of the battery materials has to come from North America because you know better than anyone, China is dominating mm -hmm. when it comes to advanced technology and when it comes to battery, war materials and making EVs. And you're about to give a major policy speech Monday on China. You were basically the front man under the Trump administration to talk about China. And in 2019, at the Woodrow Wilson Institute, you said you constantly get asked, are we trying to decouple from China? And you said a resounding no. Is that still the case? It's still the case. But we have to recognize that China is the greatest economic and strategic threat of the United States of America. So why not decouple? And, well, because I think using access to the most powerful economy in the world, the United States of America, is a means of having China end decades of trade abuses, end intellectual property theft, stop their military provocations, uh, and, and, and end the human rights abuses that we've been witness of with regard to Muslim Uyghurs, Christian pastors. It, is, it should be the objective and the goal of the United States. But everything begins with strength. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll actually return to the Hudson Institute where I gave actually the very first speech uh, on changing uh, our administration's policy toward China uh, many years ago. 
go. And, and I'm going to say then it all, it all begins with not just rebuilding our military, but building a military fitted to the widening challenges in the Asia Pacific and around the wider world. I want to build a 355-ship Navy by the end of the decade. Uh, I believe the United States of America can eclipse the Chinese Navy in the Asia Pacific, and that'll send a decisive message that we are going to ensure freedom of navigation. We're going to ensure that our treaty allies uh, in the region uh, have the support that they need. Uh, look, I, I've met President Xi. Uh, I've sized him up as a person individually. I've told him some things that he didn't want to hear. Uh, and, and we've spoken plainly at, at conferences about the interests of our respective nations. I, China only understands strength. Uh, and, I, and if I'm president of the United States, we're, we're going to meet that moment with American strength. But we're also going to use access to this, the most powerful economy in the world, uh, as a means of, of bringing China forward. Just like we did, Anne-Marie, with the phase one trade deal in 2020. People long since forgotten it. And by all accounts, Joe Biden hasn't held China to their word with Kept the phase the trade deal. Well, we, we, we put $250 billion in tariffs on China, and literally almost overnight they were at the negotiating table saying, mm. uh, how do we figure something out? And we did a phase one trade deal that, where they made commitments to agricultural goods, to manufactured goods, to dealing with trade abuses. I think Joe Biden and his administration have largely dropped the ball. Now, the other piece of this, I believe in free trade with free nations. And the other piece of this is we ought to be working on a free trade agreement with Japan. We ought to be looking to strengthen trading relationships uh, with, with free countries across the Asia-Pacific. It's part and parcel of what we'll talk about well, Let's talk week. about trade with China now. We've seen what yeah. China is capable of with this recent uh, revelation of Huawei suddenly emerging with a smartphone that includes right. chips that we're trying to keep away uh, from China. Are we dancing around the edges here? Is it possible to continue compartmentalizing that relationship? I know you don't want to decouple, but why not cut off our entire technological relationship with Beijing? Well, look, we, we led the fight internationally against Huawei. So that's a good Among idea. Western nations, and we won that fight. If you remember, the UK the and other nations yes. from 2019. were going all in on Huawei, and the United States said it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. This whole issue of TikTok, I know, I, I know that um, one of my competitors, Vivek Ramaswamy, in yeah, the Republican a, primary, had he had rightly described TikTok as a digital fentanyl <laughs> for American youth, and uh, this week he signed up for TikTok. I said he'd met with one of their executives and they changed his mind. Well, they're never going to change my mind. We, we shouldn't expect you on TikTok soon? Uh, not anytime soon. We ought to be banning TikTok. TikTok is a platform of the communist Chinese government. They're collecting data on Americans every single day. And I've got to tell you, I got, I got, I've raised three young people in this generation, all right? And two of their families are in the armed services. And what young Americans deserve to know is that their privacy is being compromised with participation in the TikTok platform. We've got to make that case. We've got to protect the privacy and the intellectual property rights of Americans. When you give this speech, are you going to outline more tariffs? Because you're talking about free trade deals with countries like Japan. Well, what does that mean for the record trade the United States has with Beijing? Well, I, I, think, I think what we're going to do is lay out a vision. Uh, for, for giving China an opportunity to join the family of nations and, and, and respect 
the international rules of the road, as I like to say. Um, but but I, I really do believe that it begins with American strength. I mean, we've gone through a period of time where, where China flew a, a balloon over strategic, uh, you know, uh, facilities in, in North America. Uh, and, uh, and at the same time, their ships are cutting off our ships in the Asia-Pacific, aircraft cutting off American aircraft on patrol near Taiwan. Uh, th that's got to stop. And, and uh, it stops when they see that America's uh, not doing what Joe Biden has done over the last uh, uh, two and a half years, which is make every effort to try and cut military spending. I mean, a lot of people don't know this recent debt ceiling deal. If they don't pass all of their 13 bills, mm -hmm. which looks more in doubt every day, it's a 1% cut in military spending across the board. But it's the Republicans who voted against right. even debating the defense budget on the House floor. And it's this president that actually asked for additional Pentagon funding that appears to be... Well, look, the, the, what, what I've seen from this administration early on is a consistent effort to cut military spending. When they did that omnibus bill at, at the end of the Democrat-controlled Congress uh, a half a year ago, they, they were able to backfill those cuts. But look, it's like I've said, when we came in in, in, in 2017, we had to rebuild the military after years of, of budget cuts under the Obama-Biden administration. But my vision is going to be we, we don't need to rebuild the military. We need to build a military fitted to the widening challenges. War raging in Eastern Europe, China continuing to menace in the Asia-Pacific. Uh, uh, but we'll have peace through strength and we'll also ensure prosperity. Well, speaking of projecting strength. American power, uh, we talked to Senator Tommy Tuberville uh, just two days ago about his blockade on military promotions. We're hearing a lot of people suggest that that is weakening uh, our posture and, in fact, impacting military readiness. This is, of course, in protest of the, the Pentagon's abortion policy. I know you said in a town hall the other night that you would not ask Tommy Tuberville to step down or stand down, but you would ask the Pentagon to stand down on this. What about military families? You know a lot about this. You have a son who's a Marine Corps pilot. Military families who might be in temporary housing, uh, their kids are waiting to go to school, they're not getting the pay increase that they were waiting for that's tied up in a confirmation vote at some point. Is that just the cost, the sacrifice of being in the military? Well, I've got a son in the military and a son-in-law yeah. who's in, in the, the Navy, Navy, so don't, don't leave anybody out. I'll be getting in trouble. God forbid. Um, look, um, if I'm president of the United States, I'm going to look across the river at the Pentagon and I'm going to say stand down on playing politics, okay? I mean, the Supreme Court of the United States returned the question of abortion to the states and the American people. States have adopted pro-life laws. It is not the place of the Pentagon to use taxpayer dollars to, to undermine uh, state pro-life laws around the country. There's nothing that restricts military personnel from taking leave, traveling wherever they want to travel, and obtaining health care services. I'm pro-life. I don't apologize for it. But the issue here is taxpayer funding, and it's, it's, it's part of and parcel, it seems to me, Joe, of kind of this, uh, this liberal and oftentimes woke politics that's made its way into the hallways at the Pentagon. We, if I'm president of the United States, we're going to have a secretary of defense. We're going to have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that focus uh, on the mission. But on, on, on the larger question uh, of life, I, I, it is something that separates me from other, other candidates in the Republican field, with, with maybe one exception. I mean, the, uh, the former president, other candidates in this race want to rally
relegate the question of abortion to the states only. And I'm, I'm one of the few leading candidates that's actually called for a minimum national standard. I, I, I think we ought to align the laws across this country with most of Europe. In most of Europe, limits abortion uh, after 15 weeks. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but there are I, exceptions. Would I, you be for exceptions? Life of the mother, mother fetal um, issues. Anne-Marie, if you check my record in Congress, I've I always recognized uh, receptions in, in cases of rape, incest, life of the mother. But I just think looking today at, uh, at, at, at we've made great progress. I speak as a pro-life American in states around the country. But, but I, I think there's a case, and seven out of ten Americans agree with me, according to polls, that, that at the moment at which an unborn child can experience pain, we ought to limit abortions uh, after that. That's roughly about 15 weeks. And as president of the United States, unlike Donald Trump, unlike other leading candidates, uh, in this primary, mm -hmm. uh, I'll be a champion of the right to life and that national standard. But back to White Senator House. Tuberville, should one senator have this power to undermine what people I'm hearing? I mean, General Mark Kelly says that you're hearing champagne bottles hit the ceilings at the Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C., up Connecticut Avenue because of what he's doing to undermine U.S. military preparedness. Should one senator have that power? And you seem to be a defense hawk. Aren't you concerned this is undermining national security? It's, it's the reason why I would, if I was president of the United States, I'd tell the Pentagon to stand down. Mm -hmm. Stop playing politics with this. But look, the other thing is, come on. Uh, Senator Schumer can just bring Senator Tuberville's bill to the floor. The, the Pentagon unilaterally decided to start using taxpayer dollars to pay for members of the armed services to travel out of state to seek uh, an abortion. That, that ought to be something that Congress talks about and debates. It's the use of taxpayer dollars. Uh, it, and and it used to be one of the things that we agreed on in Congress in a broad bipartisan basis was whatever your view of abortion, you recognize that it was simply wrong to take the taxpayer dollars of millions of pro-life Americans and use it to subsidize abortion. It's the same principle. Chuck Schumer could put that bill on the floor tomorrow, vote it, and uh, let, let the votes be counted, and the policy will be set at the Pentagon. But I, we just got to get the politics out of the Pentagon if I'm president of the United States. I promise you, you I will, because a good part about the Pentagon, different from Congress, is they take orders. Well, let me ask you this philosophically, then. You have famously said that you are first a Christian, then a conservative, and then a Republican. In that order. In that order. So would your North Star be your faith, your Christianity, in making other decisions in the Oval Office? Well, it would guide the way that I deal with others. I'm someone that believes that civility is essential to democracy. Well, when it comes to the right to life, Joe, that's, that's where my pro-life views spring from. The Bible says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I mean, I, I set before you life and death, blessings and curses, now choose life. So that's your but, one exception when but, it comes to well, your Christian but faith. But on a, on a broad range of issues, well, that, that in, informs my faith. Yeah. But I think more than anything else, we, I hear people across Iowa, across New Hampshire, who want to see us restore a threshold of civility in public life to get back to uh, treating others the way we want to be treated, which is at the very core of my faith. And, and uh, you all know me for more than a few years. You know, I, I, I'm a conservative, but I'm not in a bad mood about it. I, I, people that knew me in Congress. <laughs> what do you mean? Who's in a governors? bad mood about being conservative? Is that because you feel like populism has taken control of your party? No, it's a different issue. I just mean, I think, uh, look, you, you, you get 15 miles out of Washington, D.C., the people of this country actually get along pretty well. Mm. 
It's our politics is as deeply divided as it is today. And, and I, I think the American people long to see our politics reclaim the kind of civility that most Americans show each other every day. Look, we're a nation of diverse views and diverse opinions. And, and as my late father, a combat veteran, used to say, I may disagree with what you say, but I'll fight to the death for your right to say it. We'll defend the freedom and the liberties of every American, but, uh, but I think the American people want us to get back to more respect in Washington, D.C., the same kind they show each other every day. Joe brought up um, Christianity, and there's another man of faith who had some interesting words that we're learning he had to say about you. Mm -hmm. Senator Mitt Romney, he's retiring. There's this new biography out about him, and an excerpt, this is what was said. Romney had long been put off by Pence's pious brand of Trump sycophancy. No one, he told me, has been more loyal, more willing to smile when he saw absurdities, more willing to ascribe God's will to things that were ungodly than Mike Pence. He is deeply religious. What would you say to him? Well, he, he doesn't know what I, what I ascribe to. He wasn't there. He wasn't. Uh, look, I, I, um, I, 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 he's entitled to his own opinion. But I'm proud of the record of the Trump-Pence administration. I'm proud of what we did for the right to life, for religious liberty. I'm, I'm proud of how we revived our economy. I'm proud of how we rebuilt our military. And um, uh, it's the greatest honor of my life to have served as vice president. And uh, uh, I, I know he's had his problems with the president, uh, but um, um, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very confident um, that we were where we were called to be during those four years. But now, you know, I'm, I'm running for president because I think different times call for different leadership. Um, and not just, not just different style of leadership, but as I said last week in New Hampshire, you know, when, when Donald Trump ran for president, he promised to govern as a conservative. Mm -hmm. and, and we did for four years. Um, but uh, Donald Trump makes no such promise today. In fact, I, I see him walking away from American leadership on the world stage and talking the language of appeasement when it comes to the war raging in Eastern Europe. Uh, Joe Biden's policy on entitlements is insolvency. He won't even talk about it. Donald Trump's position is the same as Joe Biden's. And when it comes to the right to life, Donald Trump and others in this race want to marginalize the right to life to a state's only issue. So my message uh, to people is that uh, because of the experience I had at the White House and as a governor uh, and as a leader in the Congress of the United States that I'm, I believe I'm the most qualified, the most tested, and the most experienced, and the most ready conservative in this race. You were called to a rather unique position on January 6th, and you have said recently that Donald Trump asked you to put him over the Constitution. You chose not to. But Vice President Pence, were there other times that Donald Trump tried to put himself over the Constitution when he may not have asked for your help that you witnessed in the White House? I, I, I don't believe so. Uh, I, I believe that the January 6th was a tragic day. I mean, the president um, was surrounded by a gaggle of crackpot lawyers that should have never been allowed on the White House grounds. They told him things that just simply weren't so. Um, but I think all along the way in our administration, we, uh, we kept faith with the American people, with the agenda we ran on. My differences with the president today are, are uh, they, they remain over that day. I mean, I'll always believe, by God's grace, I did my duty under the Constitution that day. And as I travel around the country, um, 
uh, there's almost not a day goes by that, that, uh, that someone, Republicans, independents, even many Democrats, stop me and, and thank me for just keeping my oath to the Constitution. Mm-hmm. But I have other differences with the former president, and they have to do with the direction of the country. I, I think this country's in a lot of trouble. I think Joe Biden has... Uh, uh, has, has weakened our nation on the world stage. I think Joe Biden's economic policies have failed people from Detroit to all across this country. And uh, what we need to do is return to those time-honored, time-tested, common-sense conservative policies that I've always been about uh, in the course of my life and the career. And if I'm president of the United States, I know we will. We have under a minute, so this is a quick yes or no. What's raging in Washington now is whether or not we're going to have a government shutdown. Yep. What's your take? Well, as as you know, I was I was a House conservative before it was cool. I mean, I I remember when we dug in in the wake of Hurricane Katrina and demanded that there be offsets to pay for that. So I think it's important that House Republicans take a strong stand. But let's be clear that whatever's accomplished in this moment, it's still just going to be nickels and dimes. But Ukraine funding against the massive debt crisis that our nation is facing, and I'm I'm the first candidate and one of the only candidates for president said, I'm going to be willing to lead our nation forward on common sense and compassionate reforms of entitlements and save this and future generations. Preserve Social Security and Medicare yeah. today, All right. but save our kids from a debt crisis that threatens our future. Mr. Vice President, thank you for coming to see us. How about we meet in Iowa? Former Vice President Mike Pence with us here on Bloomberg. Thanks for the time, sir. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, Top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.